welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. My name is Simon Carley. And I'm Natalie May. And today we're going to do a session on a condition which you'll no doubt see in the early days of your career in emergency medicine and possibly for the rest of your life in emergency medicine. And that's the patient who presents with back pain, lower back pain, a traumatic back pain. So they've not been involved in a motorcycle accident, they've not fallen off a building, but they present with a history of back pain. Now, Natalie, there's a bit of baggage associated with these patients. I think we've got to be honest about it. I think it's really tricky seeing patients with back pain in the emergency department. It can be really easy to bring a whole load of preconceptions about the patients who have just come for extra pain relief and they're going to be difficult to manage. But actually, we probably need to put a lot of that aside because there are some other things that can cause back pain that have nothing to do with that cohort of patients that are difficult to manage from pain relief perceptions and it's important that we can tease out what are the important things that we shouldn't be missing and make sure we're protecting ourselves and our patients from that side of things as well as looking after the the pain and all the symptoms that they come with. In other words it's a real mixed bag presentation there's some really high risk life-threatening really dangerous proper you know, hardcore emergency medicine diagnoses that can present as lower back pain. And then that stretches right the way through to another also equally important group of patients who may have chronic back pain for whom there's no particular medical intervention for. But as our colleague Ian Beardsall talked about in his talk around chronic pain management, there are still many interventions that we can give. But so we've got this real mixed bag of psychological problems, analgesia problems, chronic disease management, acute disease management, and life-threatening conditions. This is going to be a problem. So we need to have a system to see how we can approach these patients. So what sort of things are you advising people to do when they first start off in our specialty? My perspective on this is when you see somebody with back pain for the first time, you need to be approaching it in the context of trying to make sure you're not missing some of these really key big presentations. So asking yourself, first of all, is this something other than a musculoskeletal back pain? That musculoskeletal label should be right at the bottom of your list. You need to be going through everything else that you can possibly think of that might be causing the back pain before you finish up there and decide that that's what's going on. So there are a number of conditions that we might consider to be potentially life-threatening that may present like this. The classic, I suppose, the the one that I want to get out of the way straight away is the ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. Because if you speak to any emergency physician who's been in the job for any period of time, they will have a story of a patient who's elderly who turns up in the emergency department with back pain and the abdominal aortic aneurysm was missed. So my first tip is that we don't miss those patients. So anybody over the age of 55, 65? Depends what you read, but some red flag checklists have 65, some have 55 as an upper limit, whereby we should be thinking where definitely is there something else going on pathologically with these patients. I would say in in that age group, we need to be examining the abdomen as well as examining the back. Exactly, because back pain can be presenting as a multi-system disorder. So if you suspect it, if you've got the age range correct, if it's an acute onset, then by all means, get an ED ultrasound. It's very easy to do, and you can look for an abdominal aortic aneurysm, as we talked about in other podcasts. So quick one, something we can check for in the ED. Where are we going to go next? There are some other elements about the chronology of the pain that are going to give us a clue there's something else going on. We see a lot of patients who have chronic back pain, but we want to know about those whose pain is atypical of musculoskeletal pain. So people who've had it for a really long time and particularly pain that's worse at night or rest pains, that's unusual. Usually those musculoskeletal group of patients, they have pain that's related to the muscles and the bones and therefore when they move, things are going to get worse. When they rest, that's what makes it better. Those patients who've got pain at rest, pain that wakes them up overnight, they're ones we need to be thinking carefully about because those are hallmarks of neoplastic disease and infective causes as well. I think it's, a, it's quite a difficult group. So we've got this 
group of patients who come into the ED, there's a couple of immediate things we need to manage, such as the abdominal aortic aneurysm issue. And then I suppose your point is around looking for other multi-system associated conditions. So you do need to have a look at the global picture of the patient. So you may get clues from things like the observations taken at triage. So if the patient is tachycardic or pyrexial or unwell, or they've got a low blood pressure. These are things which you must take extremely seriously. And again, if you've been in the game for long enough, I'm sure you've all heard of stories where patients who've had a bit of a temperature and back pain has been ignored, and they've subsequently come back with some horrible sepsis going on. So sepsis is another group of patients who we might want to spot early. So we might spot them through their observations, but what other conditions might present as a sepsis-associated back pain? So we can also see renal sepsis, so pyelonephritis. That's something that can present with back pain as well. We need to be thinking about that. We're also going to take extra care in those patients who are immunocompromised to look for that infection that we might not otherwise see. So all of these history-taking things are really important. We can't skip over just because they've had back pain for a long time. We need to know about other conditions that they've got. So if they're uh, intravenous drug users, if they're taking steroids. I always put um, alcoholics, diabetics, people with HIV, people on chemotherapy. They're all people that we need to be particularly careful about their increased risk of having infective causes like osteomyelitis. It is one of those areas. In emergency medicine, we tend to take histories in a very focused way. And that element of history taking we learn as medical students, the review of symptoms. We don't do it all the time in emergency medicine, let's face it. We are focused clinicians. But in this situation, it is an area where I do go back to those early days and just run through a few questions in every system just to make sure that there's nothing else going on. And that may take us off in a completely different direction. So if somebody's got obvious urinary symptoms, we may be investigating them as a pyelonephritis of their pyrexial. So they might take out a group of patients and we're going to put them to one side. It's still going to leave a fairly large group of patients who've got this undifferentiated back pain. And again, they're still going to have some pathologies in there that we need to try and capture. So what sort of questions, what sort of approaches can we do to try and tease out the ones who we're going to have to be worried about today? There's a whole list of what are called red flag symptoms. Um, some of those we've covered already. So we've talked about night pain, long history of pain, resting pain. There are some other things we need to think about. Bilateral pain, pain on both sides of the back is more unusual in musculoskeletal causes. If they've got bowel or bladder symptoms, and we can come on to talking about the involvement of the spinal cord, they're concerning features to us, particularly if there's urinary retention in incontinence of faeces those age groups so mechanical back pain is unlikely in younger patients particularly under 19s not impossible but it's just going to make us think a bit more carefully just like in that older age group if there's history of weight loss or if they're known particularly to have cancers and especially those cancers that we know metastasize to bone we're going to be really careful with those patients we've talked about infection already we have to remember to ask about night sweats because particularly as an inner city ED, we do see some patients with TB and you can certainly have tuberculous spinal problems that can present. And if you don't ask those questions, you're not going to get there. And coagulopathy as well. You can have spontaneous retroperitoneal bleeds that can present with back pain. Really rare and really out there, but we want to be asking all of those kind of questions and ticking them all off in our mind and making sure we've really crossed those bridges and we know that there's nothing else going on. So we're going to go through these red flags and we're going to put those up on the website so people can go through. And they're well known. They're, they're used both in primary care and in emergency medicine in the UK. And they're pretty good, actually. They, they will pick up most people. There is one other condition which you briefly mentioned on there, which is a musculoskeletal problem, but is still a surgical emergency. And that's the involvement of the spinal cord. So in patients who've had a large disc protrusion, which goes back centrally, a central disc protrusion giving the classical symptoms, or are they classical, of a corda equina problem. So tell me a little bit about corda equina problems. 
So corda equina as a name comes from the fact that the end of the spinal cord looks like the tail of a horse, which I quite like as a random medical fact. And the concept behind it is that protruding disc squashes those nerve roots and you get nerve root compression. So those nerves can't work properly. So you lose some of the motor function and potentially the sensory function to your lower limbs. And you will also lose your bladder and bowel control. Yeah. And in fact, it can just take out those sacral roots affecting perineal sensation, anal sensation, and bladder function. So it can be a difficult diagnosis to make if you don't look for it, but the effects can be devastating. And in the UK, we often see reports in the literature of missed corduroquina syndrome leading to large settlements. And, you know, the large settlements, which is bad from a monetary point of view, but so essentially devastating injuries to patients. And so it's really important from that respect. How are we going to pick up patients with a corduroquina syndrome? We're going to examine them really well and we're going to do it properly. So that means that these patients need to have, as well as their abdominal exam, if they're an older patient, they're also going to need to have a thorough neurological examination, particularly of the lower limbs. So we want to look at power, tone, reflexes, sensation in both lower limbs and in all the dermatomes and myotomes. And we need to be documenting that really carefully as well. We see lots of occasions when our juniors have looked at people with back pain and they might have done that full assessment, but unless you've documented really clearly what you're looking for, it can become difficult to defend what you've done if if things then change, which they can do over time. So we're going to look for the neurology in the lower limbs. We're going to ask them about their bladder and bowel symptoms as part of our history. And some people think about bladder scanning to look for incomplete emptying. So before you get complete damage to those nerve roots whereby you get full urinary retention you might just have incomplete voiding so they'll be passing urine and then having a residual volume which is abnormal bladder scanning can be useful in that circumstance to do a post void scan to see if there is a residual volume there depends whether you've got access to a bladder scanner in your ed i guess and sometimes we don't you mentioned examining the lower limbs what about examining the perineum Yes, testing for anal tone. And it's not just the anal tone, it's also whether the patient can feel that you're performing a rectal examination. That's something we don't like to talk about. But I always say, can you feel my finger? It's a useful thing to ask somebody because they're not going to tell you if they can't unless you they know that it's in there. And let's face it, it's normal that you can. Yes, it, it is normal. It shouldn't be particularly pleasant. They're probably going to be aware that that's happening. In the examination, examination of the lower limbs neurologically is difficult and these people are often in pain. And it's not like doing this in a final year OSCE where the patient is relaxed and they can tell you specifically. I find that the history and, well, certainly history to some extent, but certainly the examination can be quite difficult to differentiate between what's pain, what's not feeling quite right and what's actually a true abnormality. Absolutely. But we have the luxury of at least a little bit of time in the emergency department. And I guess the key thing is we don't have to just do one examination. We can examine the patient, determine that there is some abnormality and then give them some adequate analgesia and hopefully take the pain element out of that equation and see if that makes those symptoms or those signs that we think we're eliciting disappear altogether or at least improve a bit. Because if it's a cord equina or an evolving cord equina, that those neurological symptoms aren't going to go away with some paracetamol, some codeine, some ibuprofen, whatever you're giving for the pain relief. And in general here at uh, St Emmons, we're massive advocates of early pain relief in, in pretty much any condition because that does help you in your clinical examination. How much of a perineal abnormality do you need before you're going to trigger and think, mm, I think this is cord equina? Do they have to have loss of anal tone? Do they have to have complete anaesthesia in the perineum? Or what? I mean, what's going to make you go, hmm, I'm starting to worry about this? Any sort of abnormality in that area is, is quite a late sign in the, in the context of cord equina. So that's going to be concerning to me. So any sort of altered sensation, I think 
I'm quite I think my practice is probably quite defensive to be fair on the scale of things but I think I would be strongly advocating for a scan if there was any suspicion of reduced or altered anal sensational tone. I agree and I think the evidence backs you up that if you've got any concern that the patient describes bowel or bladder dysfunction, if you've got anything that you can find on examination in that area, then you should certainly consider the diagnosis and discuss it with the senior doctor and discuss it with the radiologist about getting the definitive investigation here, which is going to be... An MR scan. What? You mean you're not going to do an X-ray, a plain X-ray in every single patient, doctor? No, not at all. I don't think it's going to help us. What we're going to, We want to look at the soft tissues if we're suspicious of a corda equina, and that's what we're going to see on an MR scan better than X-ray. There are some reasons that you might do X-rays, particularly in... In older people where you're suspicious of metastatic disease you might see that, that there are some bony changes there and I guess in those patients you're not as worried about the radiation dose which is obviously extremely high if you're talking about the lumbar spine so we tend to not really do that many lumbar spine films except in that very elderly population. So you could say I think from an imaging point of view if we move onto that so in terms of our strategies what we're doing is we're taking that initial approach of looking for stuff which is not really about back pain dealing with it then we're going to go and have a look at the back pain and see if there's any major red flags that consider as, as a particular problem. We're going to particularly look for corda equina. We've talked about that at length. And then we're going to go on and have a think about imaging. And I guess what you're saying here is that the choice of imaging is not like in chest pain. We're going to do a chest x-ray in pretty much everybody. But you're going to select your imaging modality based on what it is that you're looking for as a result of your history and examination. So if it's corda equina, MR scan. If you're looking for fractures... Osteoporotic fractures in the elderly clearly can occur without any real trauma. Plain x-ray initially? Absolutely. I don't see why not. If they haven't got neurological symptoms, I think that would be a reasonable place to start. Because obviously, if you find fractures, you're going to proceed to a CT scan, determine the stability of those fractures. But you don't need to irradiate all of those patients necessarily with huge doses by going for CT scans straight off. And what about things like tumours or infection? Are they going to show up on plain films? Not particularly well. You might get some clues as to other things going on. So you can sometimes see some aortic calcification, which can be a nice reminder that you haven't thought about a AAA. But if you're looking for other pathologies in the back, and particularly within the bones, so osteomyelitis and uh, TB of the spine, then CT scan is probably the first place to go for that. Potentially nuclear medicine imaging as well, looking for things like stress fractures, looking for metastases and things. So if you have a high index of suspicion of certain conditions, such as infection, inflammation or metastases, and speaking to a variety of people. And I often find that if you go to your radiology chums and say, I want this, that's not the question you should be asking sometimes. I think with these patients, you should be going along to radiologists and saying, this is the patient. These are the issues which I'm concerned about. What's our best way of imaging for this patient? You know, radiologists, I love radiologists. They are, if you treat them and really value their clinical input, they are fantastic additions to the emergency department. And certainly I I often have my decisions changed for the right reasons, I've got to say, for the right reasons with my radiology chums to decide what the right thing is to do for that patient at that time. I don't think we can be prescriptive at all about saying this is the imaging modality for everybody. I think that's a mistake. What about blood tests and things like that? Do you do those routinely or again is it more on a selected basis? Definitely not routinely. In any of those patients who are triggering those red flag symptoms about infection or other things that might be going on, I'd certainly think about doing full blood count, possibly some inflammatory markers, thinking about looking at a bone profile, so measuring the alkaline phosphatase and looking at the calcium levels. And those things might give us a clue about what's going on. I think some really interesting things there about initial approach to diagnosis and investigation. We've done a lot there, and I think that's right, that we're only now starting to get to the point where we've 
gone through a lot of ideas and we're getting to the point where actually, despite what we said at the beginning, we do have our patient in front of us who probably just does have musculoskeletal back pain. It's a common condition and it does turn up in the emergency department. So what's our approach with that group of patients? We've ruled out as far as we can the really serious stuff. How do you manage them? And that could be really tricky because those patients really, the best thing for them is to get up and get moving and they don't want to do that because it hurts. And I go through quite a lengthy explanation of the involvement of muscle spasm and the way to get that better is to move around, but you don't want to do that. So you stay nice and still and that allows the muscles to get tighter. So they hurt more. So you really don't want to move around. So you stay still so they get even tighter and we need to help patients to break that cycle. And sometimes I think just explaining that that's how it works can be helpful. So we can help them by giving them analgesia and using the WHO pain ladder to increase and add things in to try to get them moving. If it's a relatively acute onset, actually, we need to get straight on top of that and really get them moving as soon as possible. Because if we're not addressing these issues early on, they can end up with chronic back pain. And that's a real big problem, not just for us in the ED, but actually for society and for our patients on a much longer term scale. So initially, paracetamol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, codeine, stronger, sort of moderate opiates. Yeah, I think that's probably part of our back pain cocktail here. You will hear people talk about things like a back pain cocktail. It's just a terminology which is used. It's probably not a particularly appropriate one. Now, use of benzodiazepines is, is widespread in the treatment of low back pain. It's quite a controversial area. I'm not sure. And some people are vehemently opposed to using them. Some people use them selectively and some people use them as a routine. Uh, what's your opinion on that? When I see these patients, I'm definitely somewhere in the middle. If they are really struggling and they've been taking a sensible amount and a sensible frequency of painkillers so far and they still need something else to help them to get going, particularly in that really acute phase, I'm not completely against the idea of a short course, but it has to be a short course of benzodiazepine. So ideally, it's a dose in the ED while they're with us to get them going. And if they really have to, I will prescribe no more than three days worth and ask them to see their GP after that if they're still struggling. Yeah, I'm probably slightly more avoiding. In fact, there is some evidence out there, there's best bets out there that show that diazepam can actually improve acute low back pain, which is a bit of a surprise to me. I will sometimes use it to get people going to achieve that mobility thing that you're talking about. And there is a small proportion of patients who you can't discharge directly from the ED. We put on our short stay ward to facilitate that early mobilization with physio support. And I think in that group of patients who are, who are really quite distressed, then there may be an indication. But I always feel a little bit cautious about it. And it, it's really not something which is a routine in any way, shape or form. And just to really reinforce that, on review of this podcast, this is an area which I think will be the most controversial. And our view is very much that diazepam and the benzodiazepines, people often use them as muscle relaxants. And that's that's not really true. They don't relax muscle. They That's not their mechanism of action. What they do is they relax the patient and they can reduce anxiety and distress. And if that's important in managing the patient, then perhaps a single dose is appropriate for some patients. But generally speaking, it's not a painkiller. It's not a muscle relaxant. So don't use it in that way. And as Natalie describes in the next segment, it's not something we do all the time at all. Anyway, back to the podcast. Probably about 10% of the patients that I see with back pain I will go to that length for because most of them you can manage just with sensible analgesia and a good explanation of what they need to do to get themselves better with advice about exercises and increasing core stability. Um, and a quick mention for other drugs that you might see used. So are you people start talking? I've seen people being put on gabapentin for acute back pain in ED, which I've got to say I've not seen any evidence for and seems a little bit 
a little bit far-fetched, really, since it takes quite a long time to work and it's more of a chronic disease management. I don't do that so much. I leave that to our primary care colleagues. And that liaison with primary care is really important. So a really great discharge letter, guys. The GPs need to know that the patient's been to ED. They need to know what you've done and they need to know what you've told the patient as well. If you've told the patient that you're going to go to the GP and they'll have an MR scan next week, that's not necessarily great advice and will cause the GP's problems. Work with your primary care colleagues and they will do a great job for you and the patients. Yeah, it's tricky because there is a perception among patients that if their back pain doesn't get better, that they need to have some sort of imaging. So they'll quite often come to the ED with expectations about having x-rays or having a scan. And we do need to learn to manage that. And we can do that best in, in collaboration with our colleagues in primary care, I think. So last thing I was going to say around this is, again, quickly mention chronic pain. So patients who have established long-term chronic pain, the management of them is not so much about the condition, which is what we've talked about here, but it's about the management of their chronic pain syndrome. Now, it's a big subject, and there's an excellent podcast on this from Ian Beardsall, so we'll redirect you to that for further information. You really should listen to that podcast with this one in collaboration. That will give you a better approach to the overall management of this presenting condition. So, Natalie, in summary, what would you say? So when you're seeing patients with back pain, Put that musculoskeletal diagnosis right at the bottom of your list and approach these patients thinking about what you might be missing, what other things might be causing that back pain. Go through that red flag list, decent history, thorough examination that's well documented. And then when you're still coming up with nothing that's triggering and making you think that you need to be going down a different route, then you can start to address those issues of pain relief, mobilisation and exercise. And hopefully these patients will get a good result and get up and going and recover from their back pain. A good outcome for these patients is they often come in sad, they often come in in pain, they often come in miserable and if you can get them to the point where they understand what the process is, they understand that it's not going to be suddenly better but they have a plan which they understand and they can cope with in conjunction with their primary care physician, that's a good outcome for these patients. It's a good outcome for you and you will find many of them very, very grateful for what you can achieve for them. Happy patients, happy ED. Happy days. Thank you very much. Don't forget to like us on Facebook because it's really important. Follow us on Google, follow the blog, follow the podcast. We hope you love your emergency medicine. We do. Thanks for listening.